Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Tracy Ray from the employment law firm of Baron Lehman. Tracy says that OPB sponsorship is a great way to support the community and connect with Baron Liebman's clients. From the Gert Boyle studio at OPB, this is Think Out Loud. I'm Dave Miller. We turn now to syphilis. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention announced earlier this month that more than 3,700 babies were born with congenital syphilis in the U.S. last year. It was a 32% increase from the year before and 10 times higher than just a decade ago. Recent CDC data has also showed that Oregon has the ninth highest syphilis rate in the country. Tim Menza is an infectious disease doctor at OHSU who focuses on sexually transmitted diseases for the Oregon Health Authority. He joins us now. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Dave. I want to start with the basics here. What is syphilis? Yeah, yeah. So syphilis is a condition that affects multiple body systems. It's caused by a bacteria called Treponema pallidum. Um, it's in fact been a uh, an infection that's been around for centuries, if not millennia. Um, it spreads through vaginal, oral, or anal sex. And syphilis, as you'd mentioned, can also spread from a pregnant person uh, with syphilis to a fetus during pregnancy. Uh, it's not spread by casual contact. And syphilis, like other sexually transmitted infections, is really a part of being a sexually active person. It's diagnosed by a sexual history, a clinical examination in combination with a blood test. And the blood test has generally two steps, one, a screening test and a confirmatory test. And syphilis is treated with penicillin or another antibiotic called doxycycline. I've read that this has been called a silent invasion. What does that mean? Yeah, I think what we've been noticing in terms of the uh, increase in syphilis is that back in the late 1990s and early 2000s, the rates of syphilis were so low that researchers really thought that syphilis might be eradicated from the United States. And over year over year, it has been sort of slowly increasing little by little. And it's been accelerating, though, in more recent past, such that in 2022, the rate of syphilis in Oregon is really the highest it's been in recent history, with almost 2,500 cases. And for comparison, 2013, there were fewer than 600 cases. And more recently, we've really seen this steep increase in the rate of syphilis between 2020 and 2021, really during the COVID pandemic. And with continuing increases into 2022. And as you mentioned, in 2021, Oregon ranked ninth in the nation for specifically primary and secondary syphilis, which are the first two stages, symptomatic stages of syphilis. And in fact, eighth in the nation for primary and secondary syphilis among people assigned female at birth, which is a sort of a change from what we were noticing with that sort of slow incremental increase um, where most of the uh, infections were among men. Um, we really started to see an acceleration in the rates of primary and secondary syphilis among people assigned female at birth now. Hmm. And yeah, go ahead. Well, those are, um, those are questions of, of demographics and gender. What about mm -hmm. geography? I mean, are there patterns that stand out to you? Yeah. I, I mean, one of the things that we do notice is that the West Coast in particular is 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 quite affected, Oregon and California. Um, and sort of as we move through sort of the Southwest and Southern United States, in Oregon specifically, you know, what we see is largely along the I-5 corridor, but we do see increasing rates of syphilis in more rural and frontier areas as well. 
How likely is it that somebody um, would have syphilis but either not even know it, um, mm-hmm. either have mild symptoms or symptoms that they don't pay attention to, as opposed to having a sense that something is wrong but for any number of reasons not seeking treatment? Well, both things are true, and I, I think I might add a third that if they do seek treatment, perhaps their healthcare provider, given those really low rates of syphilis in the late 90s and early 2000s, if folks were training during that time, they just don't necessarily recognize the presentation of syphilis. And I will say also that um, Sir William Osler said to know syphilis is to know medicine, right? Because syphilis presents in it a wide variety of ways, and it's also been called the great imitator in that it presents in a wide variety of ways that could be mistaken for other things. And so, you know, kind of going back to the uh, piece of might someone not notice uh, symptoms? And, and yeah, that's often the case. So in the syphilis has four stages. The first stage is called primary syphilis, and it occurs after you know, about 10 to 90 days after infection. And it's characterized by a painless break in the skin, an ulcer. Um, technical name is a chancre. And um, it usually occurs where the site, where, where the bacteria enters the skin. So this could be the mouth, the lips, the tongue, the vulva, the vagina, the penis, and or the anus or rectum. And so oftentimes people may not notice it because it's actually inside and it goes away after a few weeks without treatment so folks might notice it but then it disappears and might say okay well that's gone um, and 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 similarly if they're presenting to a healthcare provider um, they might sort of not do an exam that looks for specific things um, or, or or recognize the symptoms to then go ahead and treat the complicating thing is then um, secondary syphilis sort of occurs potentially after an asymptomatic phase. So primary syphilis resolves and then secondary syphilis occurs. And 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 that is characterized by a rash, um, usually on the palms and soles, but it could also be on the trunk, the chest, the abdomen, back, arms and legs. And oftentimes it's mistaken for other things because it looks so nonspecific. Mm. Um, so again, someone the other thing is, it, and it also goes away without treatment. So, um, so the same things apply for primary syphilis as they do for secondary syphilis, and that there's something that looks like it could be other things, and then it just resolves. It doesn't mean the infection has uh, has gone away. It's just gone what we call latent, or or becomes an asymptomatic, uh, uh, persistent infection. You know, I want to turn it back to something you mentioned twice now that that. Doctors maybe who um, got their training, say, in the late 90s or early 2000s, mm. they, they may not have, have encountered this. Is, yeah. is medical training changing now to, to stay current with the population's needs? I, I think so. I mean, that's a that's a big question. I think, uh, in terms of syphilis, I I do think we're sort of reintroducing. You know, definitely in my in my work at OHSU, um, in my work with uh, provider organizations, um, we're doing a lot of training on syphilis these days. A lot of training on STIs in general, um, just because we've seen increases over time in all STIs, including gonorrhea and chlamydia, including syphilis, and so um, so that the, there is an effort um, to kind of bring this back to the fore um, and make sure that people recognize how to um, clinically diagnose, how to test for, and how to treat uh, syphilis in addition to gonorrhea, chlamydia, and and other sexually transmitted infections like HIV as well. 
If you're just tuning in, we're talking right now about the rise in syphilis cases in Oregon and around the country. Tim Menza is our guest. They're an infectious disease doctor at OHSU, also the medical director of the HIV, STD, TB section of the Oregon Health Authority. I want to turn specifically to um, questions about congenital syphilis, which a lot of people may have seen some articles about recently because that was the focus of some recent CDC data. How common is this in Oregon right now, meaning babies being born with syphilis? Yeah. So let me just start by saying that not even one congenital syphilis case should should happen um, in a modern healthcare system. So what we've been seeing in Oregon is in 2013, there were no cases of congenital syphilis. In 2014, there were two. And in 2022, there were 37. And this year, um, there are 27 cases as of November 8th, uh, 2023. Hmm. What are the potential repercussions of congenital syphilis? Yeah. So congenital syphilis can affect how the baby grows, how soon a baby is born, and its weight at delivery. It can also affect the skin, the blood cells, the liver and spleen, the nervous system, the bones, and other body systems. So it's prevented by screening three times during pregnancy and treating the pregnant person with syphilis with penicillin delivered by a trained professional um, with a single dose or three weekly doses, depending on the stage. And the treatment is 98% effective in preventing congenital syphilis. And babies born with syphilis can also be treated with penicillin. That said, there are missed opportunities for the prevention of syphilis, congenital syphilis in Oregon, kind of falling broadly into two categories. Um, one is sort of no uh, access or very late access to prenatal care. And if someone is diagnosed, um, then inadequate treatment of the pregnant person. And in those cases where we don't see treatment during pregnancy, um, we'll see that 10% of babies with syphilis die. The majority are either stillborn and a smaller proportion die within the first year of life. So by preventing congenital syphilis, we're preventing, of course, the short and long-term health consequences of syphilis in babies. We're keeping babies alive, and we're ensuring that pregnant people and their families don't have to experience the trauma and sorrow of losing an infant. What do you see as the systemic reasons why mm. somebody who, say, even tests positive during pregnancy for syphilis wouldn't get adequate treatment for themselves and for their baby? Yeah, it, this is a complicated problem. Um, and so we've definitely seen, uh, let me just contextualize things a little bit. We've definitely seen that like the social and economic factors um, that intersect with the spread of syphilis, including lots and lots of topics you've, you've talked about on your show. So systemic racism, poverty, housing instability, substance use, mental health, mass incarceration. And these um, congenital syphilis and syphilis in general is really a symptom of the social and economic crises at play in Oregon and the United States. Um, and, and policy, all policy is health policy. So policies addressing these crises will impact syphilis. So then how does this impact whether 
someone might access prenatal care or persistent prenatal care in order to be screened and treated for syphilis. So there's a legacy here. In the United States, there is a legacy of of curtailing reproductive autonomy through the medical system, particularly for pregnant people who are Black, Indigenous, Latine, Pacific Islander, folks who use substances or experiencing poverty, have mental health challenges or other disabilities, and who might be involved in the criminal justice system. So many pregnant people have faced or may face punitive consequences should they seek health care while pregnant. And those consequences could range from poor care to mistreatment um, to being reported to law enforcement and or the Department of Human Services to having their children taken from them to outright incarceration. So the risk for some pregnant people of accessing prenatal care or persisting in prenatal care just may be too high. Um, and while there are some great programs that exist to support pregnant people's engagement in care, especially those affected by these social and economic um, barriers, um, they're just not enough resources to provide that low barrier, culturally tailored, trauma-informed and uh, care and services uh, for pregnant people who need extra support. The the huge increase in congenital cases of syphilis uh, that the CDC reported, that, that was from last year, from 2022. <clears throat> but according to the Associated Press, there's been a newer nationwide problem this year, supply shortages that have made it yes. increasingly difficult for doctors to get benzathine penicillin injections, which I've read, it's the main treatment for congenital syphilis. Is that shortage affecting Oregon as well? It is affecting Oregon in that um, we are, you know, uh, monitoring the situation quite closely. Um, And thus far, we haven't had, we've, we've been able to treat all the pregnant people who've needed benzathine penicillin with benzathine penicillin. Um, and But it is a, a source of stress, I think, for a lot of providers and for for, for me and, and, and the folks I work with and my colleagues and all the local public health agencies um, who are seeing um, pregnant people with syphilis. And so it, it this is sort of one piece of this larger piece of of there's just not enough resources and funding for the public health infrastructure and workforce for sexually infection sexually transmitted infection prevention and and there's sort of relatedly here, we've actually seen a contraction. So in addition to this bicillin shortage, which has happened before, and we worry will happen again, um, we've also seen this contraction in public health services for sexual health over the last five years that really accelerated during COVID-19. And as rates of STIs had continued to rise, funding from the federal level to the state level to the local level really has remained flat or has decreased. And in fact, there was a recent decision of federal funds for an STD workforce development grant, a casualty of the debt ceiling negotiations that affected all states, including Oregon, which lost millions of dollars. What was it, and this was, as, as you said, part of the, the debt ceiling negotiations. Yeah. So, so in order for us to not default on the money that we have already spent, mm-hmm. um, the, the money that was, among other things, that was going to go towards um, preventing sexually transmitted diseases, it was cut nationwide. What exactly is not happening in Oregon that would have been happening if it weren't for that cut? Yeah. And so the it's largely the expansion of the STD workforce. So what we mean by that is um, we the state would receive that money and then we would push that money out to local public health agencies to then hire staff um, to do 
um, uh, interviews and provide partner services uh, to people diagnosed with sexually transmitted infections, and also to kind of do testing events, provide testing in the community, potentially link up to community-based organizations um, to provide um, both awareness and education, um, but also provide um, sexual health services. Studies have found that that PrEP, the the medicine intended to solely to prevent people from contracting HIV, that it can lead to less condom use. Is there a connection between PrEP and the increase in other sexually transmitted diseases like syphilis? I think the, there's there's some uh, conflicting evidence here, and I don't know that it's the whole story. So, of course, when you take HIV out of the equation with PrEP, um, pre-exposure prophylaxis, uh, which is 99% effective against um, uh, acquisition of HIV, and you also introduce U equals U, so undetectable equals untransmittable, where people living with HIV on effective treatment who have undetectable viral loads cannot transmit HIV sexually. Yeah, you take HIV out of the, the equation. And of course, there's going to result in a change of behaviors because HIV is not necessarily the impetus for using condoms at this point. Um, but um, there are other, and, and so, and Insofar as HIV uh, is as PrEP and U equals U, that that knowledge and education has really been focused on a gay, bisexual, and other men who have sex with men. So maybe it explains part of the increase of syphilis there. Um, but when we think about the changes in demographics around syphilis now, where there are more heterosexually active people and more people who use drugs who are acquiring syphilis, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't necessarily translate to those populations. Because while those folks are eligible for for prep really the 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 advertisements and the push for prep uptake really wasn't focused um among women specifically among people who inject drugs specifically i think that's changing so yes but it's probably not the whole story hmm. i'm just before i say goodbye just a sort of a big picture question here the, the covid-19 pandemic highlighted the importance of public health agencies but it hmm. also it eventually led i think to a um, in our very polarized country, a significant percentage of the public, especially more conservative people, coming to mistrust the government's health care pronouncements. Obviously, that, that had to do with things like vaccine recommendations. Do you think that that mistrust has affected other public health efforts like yours? I think it's part of it. I do see that, um, and, and we we definitely feel this um, when we interview folks with um, newly diagnosed with sexually transmitted infections, um, you know, oftentimes we'll offer assistance in notifying partners, um, in um, and and folks aren't really willing to share, and I understand that. Um, and so, I, I think we have to do public health a little bit differently. Um, I do think that um, trust is a big thing, community community engagement is a big thing, and and I think that's where. Um, we really probably need to focus our efforts kind of moving forward in creating um, an, uh, 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 a public health system that's that's community engaged, um, community informed and uh, and ultimately trusted uh, a trusted resource. Tim Menza, thanks very much. Thank you. Tim Menza is an infectious disease doctor at OHSU and the medical director of the HIV STD TB section of the Oregon Health Authority.